Hello and welcome to episode 161 of the Good Good Golf Podcast. Rod Murray back in the driver's seat after a week off last week. We'll put that down to Solheim and Ryder Cup recovery. They will no doubt be among the topics on the agenda today when we catch up with friend of the pod, though it's been too long since we chatted, Megan McLaren. Meg along in just a moment from her base in England, but first, let's start closer to home. And in studio, we have co-host number one. Yes, they're numbered now. Co-host number one and re- weary traveller, Adrian. Like, like your schedule recently might have almost outdone Meg's. You've been all over the place, including Marco Simone at the Ryder Cup for at least some of it. Yeah, I had a day at the Ryder Cup. That was quite an experience, and I had a very hectic trip, like 12 flights in 10 yeah, days. Yeah, you wouldn't have stopped working the whole time you were away, I'd imagine. And yeah, relentless. Three Airbnbs and... Yeah. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was just, a little bit ridiculous. Just work, work. How many catered lunches? Six yeah. or seven countries, yeah, work, I think. Work, work, work. How many corporate tents? I had one really posh lunch at uh, the the Ryder Cup thing. The hospitality there was the best I've Brilliant. ever seen. It was superb. I don't know if it was the one that burnt down. I was going to say, because lucky, because it burnt yeah. down the next time. <laughs> that was, was the end of that. <laughs> it was superb while it lasted. Good to uh, good to have you back. Also in studio, more orthodox working media, where global travel's less an expectation, more an occasional luxury. Co-host number two, Pent for Hire, Jimmy Emanuel. What's well, been a busy week for Australian golf, Jimmy? We start getting towards the Australian summer. There's been announcements. There's things happening. There's tournaments on. Where golf's in our backyard again. It's full steam ahead. It is. Adam Scott announced for Australian tournaments. More announcements coming, I'm sure. There's plenty happening. Not, not to be a sycophant, but full marks to Adam Scott, who has been, mm. along with Kari and, to his credit, Greg Norman, great supporters of golf in this country when they really don't have to be, and they've really Absolutely. set an example. Absolutely. Yeah, he was. He spoke really well about it yesterday, I think. I can't remember what day it is. But he spoke really well about it and about how much it means to try and win things and that you know, he knows he's running out of chances to do yeah. that. So good on him. And golf is in your backyard if you live in Kalgoorlie this week. Yeah, it's, <laughs> that's it's not of, anyone's backyard. That's a ridiculous rem- statement. One of, the more, one of the more remote parts of where they play golf. But as we discussed on playing chips, good golf course and a great event, which has really created a nice, unique place for itself on the calendar. So yeah, I'll be there in a day and a half. And we'll look forward to seeing you on the TV coverage, but perhaps with the sound down. Enough out of us. Let's bring in today's guest. Every now and then in life, you meet people who are exceptionally good at more than one thing. Those people are particularly annoying, except when they also happen to be extraordinarily engaging and nice. It's at that point they are elevated to infuriating. So it's a livid hello, though in reality a great pleasure, to introduce professional golfer, writer and all-round good person, Meg McLaren. Meg, I jest, of course. Thanks for taking the time. How are you? I'm good. I'm very unsure how to take any of that, but thank you. In the, sp- in <laughs> the spirit a- that it's given, and I'll let you know what that spirit is by the time we finish chatting today. <laughs> uh, good, good to catch up. It has been too long. You've been quiet. We were just talking about that before we started. You haven't been doing as much writing. We haven't been seeing as much of you. You haven't been trolled on Twitter. What have you been doing? <laughs> I know. I've been um, – it's strange. Like I wrote a blog maybe last week, week before. I, I don't know if it's just – I want to get on with things a little bit more like this year's obviously been a bit of a struggle golf wise. And I don't know if I've just been kind of putting more of my energy into, into turning that around. Um, I also think Twitter's become a slightly different place than it was a couple of years ago. And I maybe just don't feel as much engagement as I used to. Um, but it's still, I'm still here. I'm still, <laughs> still running around in the golf world as I can. It's been a bit of a roller coaster, the golf game this year, as you said. But light at the end of the tunnel, as we discussed in a couple of DMs these past couple of weeks. Talk to us about what life as a professional golfer is like. We know we've read it on your blog many times, but it's an ongoing journey, isn't it? It is, yeah. It's um, it's been a really strange year, to be honest. Probably one of the most difficult since I turned pro. 
um, I decided to change coach in, I think, about April time, which was a really big move for me because I've been with the same coach since I've been a professional. It's like a breakup, um, isn't it? Almost, in it, some ways? Yeah, it's very, very difficult. And, like, full credit to, to Shane, the guy that I was with. He he handled it really well. But, yeah, there's been, there's been a few tough conversations this year. Um, but I just felt like I'd been maybe papering over some cracks for a little while and it was kind of time to do something about it. And like anything, it's, you know, a pretty big jump into the unknown, even if you know it's the right thing to do. So it's been, it's definitely been hard work this year, but I'm, I'm very, very glad that I did it. And the guy that I've brought on board, Martin Park has been like phenomenal. He's been kind of really given me like a different perspective on, on my golf and maybe what my future can hold as well. Physical, mental, emotionally different. What's the what's the change? Do you reckon when you change coach? It's it's mainly mainly technical. To be honest, the most boring mm. of all of those things. Um, but I just needed to take a bit more ownership of my golf swing and to understand why it was good when it was good and why it was bad when it was bad. Because I felt like I was kind of just chancing it a little bit. I remember last year I played. So the event we've just played, actually, the French Open, I um, lost in a playoff last year. But the week before, I was probably like the lowest point I've ever been in my career. And I had absolutely no idea what changed one week to the next. And it's like you've, you've kind of got to have some reasons, even if even if golf is very unpredictable. Yeah, because golf – open to France, I think, open, isn't open it? Open to France. Yeah, I was going to correct you there, man. But- <laughs> When you're a touring pro, how do you find a coach? What do you look for in a coach? How do you decide on Martin Parker? That's a great question, and I think everybody would probably answer it differently. There's a lot of people who go for the names, people who have proven track records. Um, My coach, my previous coach, Shane, um, was somebody who was quite local to me, and I'd been introduced to him through like regional stuff and just liked the way that he did things, kind of built up a good relationship with him. And then I think I got to a point where I needed, I think I just needed a different perspective on the technical components of the golf swing. Um, and I happened to know Martin through another player. So it kind of made sense to me. Like I understood the way he did things already, which I think it can be really hard to dive into a new relationship with somebody who you've never met before or you've never kind of had any interaction with because everybody has such a different way of doing things that their information might be good but if there's no relationship it can be really hard to to kind of grasp what they want you to do this would be in your wheelhouse Logue teaching slash coaching is an extraordinarily interesting idea isn't it it's really about communication there's a two-way thing has to happen so somebody who's a good coach for one person not necessarily a good coach for another person. Yes. Uh, I, I'd have thought this would be in your wheelhouse given you're oh, yeah. doing some podcast coaching. I'm Not yet. I'm attempting to earn the Let's certificate that will allow me to world. do so. Let's but, just put yeah. that out into the world that the – this Professor Mori. Yeah, Professor Mori. <laughs> it'll it'll be <laughs> Mr. when the time comes, class, but I'll let you class know when will you need be to start in soon for <laughs> There'll Professor be no more Murray. just turning up late, I can assure you. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah. Look, I'm interested in the protocol for mm. changing coaches, mm. actually. Like, do you, do you sort of cheat with the new coach a couple of times <laughs> and then, and Honestly, then go like, to the old coach and say, look, I've met somebody. Where, I've had a lesson yeah, elsewhere. Yeah, that's how it works? I, that is exactly how it works, if you do things the right way, which 
I know a lot of people don't because it's such a difficult conversation to have. But, you know, it's like you kind of want to put the feelers out first to make sure that what you're going to go into is really what you want. But, you, you know, some coaches are like clean break. That's it. Um, so, yeah, I just for me personally, I said to Shane, like, look, I think it's time for a second opinion. And I kind of did things that way. And in fairness to Shane, he's always been really, really good at being open to things like that. Um, and then obviously went to speak to Martin and came back and said, like, look, this is this is where I want to go now. Um, and kind of thanks for everything. But it's such a strange dynamic because you've been close to somebody kind of personally as well as professionally for a long time. And then it's like, okay, well, what's our relationship now if you're not my coach anymore? So it is, you know, maybe maybe other people are a bit more cutthroat about it. And it's obviously a, it's a professional decision at the end of the day. So you have to do what's right for you. But I'm sure there's been a lot of sticky situations in the past. Same thing with Caddies, isn't it? But a good coach, Megan, one you've had for a long time, yeah. I assume, is as invested in your career as you are. So it's a really complex relationship, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And that's where if you're with the right kind of person, hopefully they, you know, they want what's best for you. And even if it's they not- would like to be the one to take you there, you yeah. know, they, but, but yeah, I've got, I've been very, very lucky with my situation this year, but I've also experienced different versions of that in the past when I was an amateur. So it's, yeah, it can get quite awkward quite quickly. And how's all that affect your golf while you're trying to play mm-hmm. through all of that? Oh, Forget about the technical changes and all the rest of it, but you got all of that going yeah. in the background. Yeah, it's. Um, I think I, I knew very quickly that it was the right thing for me to do. But the thing that I found, the reason that I found the decision so hard to make in the beginning is because I was really worried that I would lose the stuff that I was good at. So even if I didn't understand why one week I might miss a cut and feel awful and the next week I would lose in a playoff the fact was I could do it you know and I I won last year I've won I've won like reasonably consistently since I've been a pro so I was terrified that I was going to lose that stuff by kind of breaking things down and, and starting again if you like um and it was it was difficult it was there were elements of that in the first kind of couple of months that I played um this season but I think I still knew that the changes that I wanted to see were taking place. It's just very hard to turn that into kind of trust and tournament play as well. You know, lots of golf pros, Jimmy. This is brutal, isn't it? This is every golf. Yeah. This is every golf pro's life. Am I doing the right thing? Is this the right move? I, I know of one pro who I know decently well who will remain remain nameless for this till after we finish. Recording. Yeah, yeah. Who had a habit of. Like Meg says, we kind of, in Logue's word, cheat on the coach with someone else. Would go back and forth constantly between them because we'd go and have the conversation about it's not working what we're doing. And I've saw seen someone else and they've given me some good stuff. And I think it, and would get talked back around, and then would have the same experience again with the other coach. And then sometimes even just a third person would jump Ooh, in and go, and ends up in this mental pretzel and physical pretzel just trying to hit a golf ball, which they can do quite well, but they're working in that. So it's insanely hard to make those decisions and, and go th- go with that when there's been an established one, I can only imagine. But tour coaching is a fascinating thing as opposed to coaching golf. I mean, I, I know a couple of guys who did that as their main thing and trying to get players to sign a contract 
because it's how they make their living. But that's not how it works for a player. I mean, Meg needs to find the best thing to play her best golf each week. Being contracted to a coach when it's not working doesn't work. And mm-hmm. having clauses about thanking them and stuff, it's it's a, a very different element to being a club pro teaching the members who might have a junior who comes up and turns into a really good tour pro. Have been tempted to just get a job, Meg? got to be easier, doesn't it? <laughs> with all this nonsense, my head's spinning and it's not even a, an issue for me. No, and that's when you start, God, if I could <laughs> tell you some of the stuff that's been through my head on the golf course this year, you would probably tell me to get a job as well. But it's, yeah, a lot of, a lot of tour pro coaching, I think, is like is hand-holding because, mm. you know, 95% of the players at the top level can swing a golf club really well, you know, but you lose confidence or, you know, you, you're always trying to find that next level. And sometimes people just need somebody standing behind them, telling them that it looks great, you know, but I think I personally was in a place where I needed, I needed more understanding than that. But, but yeah, it's a, a strange business to be in for sure. That fear of losing, it's genuine, isn't it? It's happened to others who've had it, gone looking for something more and never been the same golfer again. That's a huge decision, I would think, for somebody. As you say, you know, you, you haven't, you're not playing at the top level week in and week out, but you've been a consistent winner. You know, you've got enough game to get there, and you know you could compete with those players. There's a real risk, isn't there, in wanting to tear down a technique that's really served you well for the most part? Yeah, absolutely. And it is, you know, a lot of players don't don't necessarily know why they're good. And I think mm. because you've been playing for such a long time, there are certain certain things that you just have, you know, it feels like they're innate, even though they've probably been built up over time. And it is a terrifying prospect to go, well, if I don't understand necessarily what that is specifically, how do I know that I'm not just going to lose it if I change things or I start thinking about things differently? So it was, it was like a bit of a plunge, but I still, I think I still realized, you know, I had a, I had a practice session just before I made this decision um, and I'd come back from a tournament and I was a bit all over the place, but I was like, I'm just going to go and work it out and get my confidence back. And I went onto the range and I hit like five balls and I almost had a breakdown because I was like, I've got no idea what's going on. I just, I don't know what to do here. So that was kind of the moment where I was like, okay, I need to, I can't keep going like this because even if, you know, even if it's scary and even if I might lose something, it's it's worth it at this point. This kind of, look, luckily, Meg, in professional golf, there are always thousands of us double-digit handicappers out there who've got advice for you to help you through, so you don't need to panic about it. I never had it, and I lost what I didn't <laughs> yeah, have. exactly right. Chasing a golf swing well, with a person I, who sold me on a concept. I've, I've lost a level having, of my mediocrity. <laughs> <laughs> having a breakdown after a few practice swings as well is something <laughs> that's, that's very, very familiar. That's, that's very why I don't practice. <laughs> Yeah. What did, what are you working on, Meg? What are the technical things in a golf swing that's been clearly good enough to get you through for a few years? Yeah, it was um, basically my ball striking was too inconsistent. Um, so I've I've worked really hard on on basically that. So my attack angle, if that kind of is a concept that makes sense to most people, basically just making sure I get the ball first all the time. Um, so that's kind of trying to tidy things up a little bit in my backswing and my setup and just have a few less moving parts to kind of make things as efficient as, as they can be. So it's kind of, it's not complicated, but obviously the golf swing is complicated as well. So it's, 
yeah, it's quite a simple concept. But when you've not thought about it in a certain way for so many years, it's it's a bit of an adjustment. You hear two pros talk about windows. They see the ball go through a window for their whole group. When they see it going through that window as it comes off the face, that they know that they're playing well and they can have confidence. Are you one of those? And has your window changed? It has, yeah. That's a great way of putting it. And that's one of the things that when I've started to play better this year, that's actually what I struggled with then kind of in the latest stages of the tournament was because it was such an unfamiliar feeling to me that I didn't have those kind of old feels to fall back on and to go, well, this means I'm playing well. Um, Because I used to be, you know, for me, it was all about club face stability. So the ball would be incredibly straight whenever I played well. And it's still like that. There's not, there's not much movement at all, but my feels to get there are very different. So that's kind of been a, a challenge on top of all the other challenges, I guess. We'll move on to some big picture stuff in a moment, but we did sort of touch on it briefly. feels like it's starting to come together. You've had a couple of good weeks, not just rounds or holes or shots, but you've had some good weeks. So do you feel that you're now starting to see the payoff for making the difficult decision early this year? Yeah, I do. It's obviously it's easy to say when the results are better, but I think, to be honest, even when I played for Open this year, in the, I missed the cut, but in the first round, I played some unbelievably good golf. And I think that was the first time where I went, this is this is what I wanted out of this change. This is me like believing that I can compete at the top level. And kind of since then, it's been, like you said, turning it from spells in rounds into whole tournaments. And obviously the confidence, you know, is a lot easier to have when you do it for a whole round. But it definitely has... I've started to put it together a bit more. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just having some technical difficulties here. Uh, golf instruction to me is one of those things. I'm always amazed at the contradictions mm. in mm. it and the way you, it, people would just generally treat golf as a completely separate thing when it comes to instruction and improvement to everything else in life. Where And one example that comes to mind is when a pro changes something, everybody's in outrage about like, oh, no, they should just keep doing what they did to get them there mm-hmm. to that position. Mm-hmm. But the truth is what they did to get them into that position was constantly was changed. Constantly changed. <laughs> like, of course, yeah. while, while you're learning to become a pro and improving as a junior and going through the ranks, you're trying everything and you're constantly changing. And, and there's, you know, people criticize you know, Tiger for changing his swing through the years. But that's, that's I think, a mark of somebody who's going to have a long career is they, they don't just sort of arrive as a pro and then that's how they play the game from then on. Is that, that Not level 100% true. Bruce Litsky would be the poster child for the opposite, wouldn't he, Jimmy? He would be, but that speaks to the fact that every single golfer, like every single person, is different and different. learns differently. I mean... He just didn't practice, but who knows what was going on in his mind. Like, there was... I don't think there was much thought about the golf swing with Bruce Litsky, I'll be honest. <laughs> probably not. But, the, but like, my, my point was, sorry, Jimmy, is just like CPAs have to constantly yeah. get new qualifications... Software developers have to constantly get new qualifications. We don't. It's, it just always seems odd to me that we don't take that uh, and apply it to golf. Well, that that person who's a tour pros coach is constantly working on their craft too. They're going yeah. to seminars. They're going yeah. to talk to other people. They're learning new things with TrackMan. It's never or solved, is it? They're, so they're they're updating their own knowledge base and inform it, you know way of informing their player. 
So even if they stayed with the same coach, they're probably getting a slightly different message as well. I think one of the great things in terms of it's not about instruction, but it kind of speaks to how the tour pro mind works. I remember Jeff Ogilvie telling us he had three versions of his putter that were basically identical. But one had a different finish in terms of colour. One had a slightly different sight dot to a sight line. And he would be putting well, but just change to one of the others because his mind just needed a refresh of what he was looking at. Mm-hmm. And I think that can be the same a bit with the information being given in a golf swing too. Sometimes it's just such a minor little change in terms of... It, you're really just engaged in a form of professional lunacy, aren't you, Meg? That's, that's what's coming Absolutely. through here. Absolutely. We're all sociopaths at the end of the day. <laughs> like it's, it's completely nuts. And it's, I mean, we could talk about this for hours, but like your body is different day to day. You know, you yeah. wake up feeling different and that changes your feel in the golf swing. And it's just, it's such a like, there's such tiny components that make up the golf swing that you can literally be half a degree different and that could change your ball flight. And, you know, you need some sort of method for either understanding that yourself or being able to see it on video or having somebody tell you this is what you need to do. Hmm. It's endlessly complicated. It's, yeah, it's, it's the great Arnold Palmer quote, isn't it? It's endlessly fascinating, incredibly simple and the most complex move, and that's why it's fascinated humans uh, for so long and intelligent humans as well. That's all part of golf, Meg, which is a big, big, big thing. Lots going on in the golf world. What's been capturing your attention of late outside of your own game? Because I know that you're an interested spectator of the game. Yeah, I was reading, obviously, the world ranking points situation with Liv overnight. Um, And I found that, I don't know, I was a little bit surprised because it seemed like some of the noises were, you know, that Liv was being embraced a little bit more. um, And that, obviously, at the Dunhill, I think, both Peter Dawson and Martin Sumbers played mm. with um, kind of one a- of the, Andrew, the head man. guys. Yeah, Andrew Waterman. Andrew, yeah. Andrew Waterman. Yeah. <laughs> also ex- the new his excellency, Andrew Chairman. Waterman. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, but I thought his, I thought Peter Dawson's statement was quite interesting because mm. he seemed to go out of his way to say he knew that it wasn't necessarily the right thing that this was happening, but he kind of didn't have an alternative currently. And that it wasn't the quality of the players that was in question as well. I thought that was the structure of the, the structure, thing to be said. Particularly the yeah. promotion and relegation. And mm. I think it was uh, there was at least some clarity around the fact that he said, "I don't vote." And Jay Monahan and Keith Pelly sat out of the vote. Why it took as long as it did to make that decision is kind because of- I'm sure they, as they rightfully should, they would want them in. If you run the World Golf Rankings, mm. you don't want Brooks Kepka and Dustin Johnson and Cam Smith not to be a part of the World Golf Rankings. Yeah. Patently stupid, and Dawson pointed to that and said it's clearly diminished by not having these players play. But on the flip side, and Meg, you could probably talk to this, as he said, there are 24 tours and thousands of other professional golfers out there being ranked on their week-to-week tournament play, and there's a bunch of guys on the Live Tour who, if you give them world ranking points, will be playing under a different set of circumstances. There are guys who cannot be removed from that tour. They can't lose their card. Every other professional golfer can lose their card, and that's not a fair competition. Does that make sense to you, Meg? Yeah, that's why instinctively I would agree with what they've done with with not awarding them points because I just I don't see how that it just doesn't fit into what professional golf is. And I completely get, you know, this potential need for changing what professional golf looks like and bringing new formats in. Like I'm not against any of that, but I think if you're 
if you're trying to rank who the best players in the world are, there have to be some set of circumstances that are the same and they're just too different with Liv at the moment. You know, like a couple of months ago, I was worried about losing my card. It, it didn't matter that I won last year. It didn't matter, you know, nothing mattered apart from how I was performing this season. And that's the way it should be, I think. That's kind of the whole jeopardy of playing professional sport. Well, professional golf, anyway. I was going to say, because golf is different, sport. isn't it? I mean, football players are yeah. contracted and tennis players aren't contracted. I'm not sure they have the same promotion and relegation opportunities as golf. But in golf, Ollie Wilson is the guest on The Thing About Golf this week. Mm. Had his best year in, in his career in 2009 and 2010 was without a card. Yeah. Then that's how professional golf works. You know, you, you kind of kill what you eat. And I think if that's what we want professional golf to keep being... Eat what you kill. What did I say? <laughs> kill what you catch. Kill what you eat, you say. I'm not good with killing. I'm not comfortable <laughs> with it. It's not nice. It's not in my <laughs> it's not in my wheelhouse. So then the question becomes, Meg, is the contracted player system what Liv's set up? Is that the future of golf? We've almost got it now with the PGA tour, guaranteed payments, if you remember, half a million when you when you it doesn't guarantee your employment for next year, which I think is the sticking point with it, but is contracted players the way of the future for golf? Leagues can't guarantee a field, can they? And that is becoming unworkable in golf. If someone comes to Keith Pelley and says, I want to have a $20 million tournament, will Rory play? And Keith Pelley can't say yes, well, that $20 million goes somewhere else, doesn't it? Yeah, and it's like, you know, I'm not sure I've fully formed my opinion on all of this, but it's a fascinating idea because so many of the live players, part of their reason for joining live and part of their reason for being angry at being banned from PGA Tour events and all this, though, you know, that independent contractors thing was thrown around left, right and centre. But then equally players seem to want some protection and some safety net, which you can only get by being contracted to the tour that you play on. And you can't be, I don't see how you can be contracted to, you know, what the system of professional golf, you're going to have to pick somewhere if you want that kind of security. And yeah, maybe it is, you know, if you can have a year by year contract, maybe maybe that is the right way to do to, to offer players a bit more protection sort of financially and, and mentally as well. But equally, like we said, that's the jeopardy is kind of what professional golf is. You know, I'm, part of the reason I'm proud of what I've done the last month is because I was scared of losing my card. You know, there was this extra factor that I had to consider and that's, you know, that's part of why people enjoy watching sport, I think, is because of those kind of emotions that, that everybody goes through. The stakes have to be real, don't they? The stakes have yeah. to be real. Mm. The competition doesn't have any integrity as a spectator event. Absolutely. I think that's why tours that aren't flush with as much cash are so enthralling to watch because there's a genuine... Mm you know, situation that's going on for that player where they make a putt or don't make a putt. Watching cut lines and players trying to make cuts mm -hmm. is one of the most fascinating things in golf. Um, watching someone like David Michaluzzi dominate the PGA Tour of Australasia last year to then earn a card in Europe was yeah. thrilling to watch. Gabby Ruffles with the Epson Gabby Tour. Ruffles with the Epson Tour has been one of the storylines this year, particularly for Australians, but it's what makes the Ladies European Tour such an amazing tour to watch and keep track of and watch this stuff happen. Robin Choi from Australia was playing the Epson Tour as well. She, I think, I want to say she bogeyed the last or someone might have birdied the last to drop her down out of that top 10 effectively in the last event, in the last round, on the last hole of the year. 
That makes me feel sick. It's, it's <laughs> awful, and she'd played really well this year as well, but that is the fascinating thing, and it's just not there with Liv at this stage. I mean, no. the we spoke about on playing from the tips about the players who can get relegated and all that sort of stuff, and we're still not 100% clear on how that's going to work. No, the, yeah, the, yeah, there's some sort of X factor involved there as well where yeah. it can all be undone. Which, th- which then, sorry, the, Liv speaks to a different audience who probably aren't that engaged in what I've just talked about, and that maybe it's a new audience that we haven't had, which makes sense that then it, if it's engaged in the existing ecosystem of golf as an additional thing that we've spoken about so many times with Premier, you know, the PGL and all that, that makes sense. There's a difference between the best players and the most popular and marketable players, isn't there? Mm. And that's what Liv is doing. They've gone with the most marketable players and names. Yeah, the ones they could get. Phil Mickelson still sells both better than Absolutely. 95% yeah. of the Corn Ferry Tour and probably 70% of the PGA Tour. Yeah, gets you can't compete thing. with any of them. Is golf an entertainment or is it a competition yeah. at this level? So as you say, the whole professional golf, you know, is – had this existential crisis over the last few years because it's like at the end of the day what what is it you know who who is the audience that it wants to bring in and the whole growing the game concept there's so many different ways to look at that as well you know because you want to to me that phrase is about growing it at grassroots it's nothing to do with professional golf but the top level of professional golf is what brings the money in so who do you want to be doing that do you want the players that are the most marketable or do you want all this jeopardy that we've been talking about mm-hmm. the players do have the role in that sense don't they I mean, we've all seen the video of you in your soccer kit when you were a kid there would have been players you were idolizing while you were swinging that club that you're now wanting to be you know whether it was rory or laura davies i don't know who it was for you but there's an importance there isn't there i'm i'm guilty of the same thing professional golf is nowhere near as important as grassroots golf that's true doesn't mean it's not important though and if the ecosystem gets burned down, and it's not uncommon to hear people who are committed golf fans in this day and age say, to be honest with you, I've given up on all of it. I don't watch any of it. I just play my own golf now. There's a real danger, isn't there, in that? Yeah, massively. I mean, and that's where I don't I don't know what the answer is because, you know, there's there's been like campaigns obviously about if you can't see it, you can't be it. And it doesn't it doesn't mean that every kid wants to become a professional golfer, but if you don't see those at the top level and you're not inspired, then, you know, your drive for actually carrying on with the sport might be less. So my, you know, my hero was Tiger. Like I spent all of my waking hours, you know, trying to do what he did on the golf course. And if it was, if live was the thing that was on TV whenever I was a kid, I don't know if it would have inspired me the same way. But equally, live might be good for you know the guys who want to go and have a drink at the weekend and and kind of just hang out with their mates. So there's just there's so many different aspects to it. Yeah, well, the shark will spray beer into their mouths from the from the balcony, <laughs> which is a such an edifying um, look for everybody involved in that. So he knows what he's doing. The, uh, the the maybe the biggest takeaway that we'll get from Liv in the end is that the players had to turn up, and mm. the, the, that's the biggest want perhaps, cultural not. change mm. that might come from the whole thing. I don't know if it'll be fifty four holes. Or all that stuff is interesting. Teams, whatever. The the one thing that has happened is that those players who you would think. You know, they made that big hullabaloo about being independent contractors. They're now the least independent mm. contractors in golf. 
They've got to turn up. Independent and and that well. schedule was very tough for them as well to come back and play this last couple Hands of Hands up events. if you think Brooks Kepka really wanted to be in Adelaide last year. It's an audio <laughs> exactly. format, but I'm not seeing many hands up. No. I think he had fun. Oh, no doubt he did. <laughs> oh, for sure. But and there was, but, but there's been plenty of opportunity. Mickelson's a classic example. Has almost never played in Australia. Mm. Almost never. And would have been asked multiple times over the years and has never made the effort to come here. But contracted to live. There's an event in Adelaide and there's Phil. The sky didn't fall either that they had to play. Like I haven't heard them complain too much. Maybe they're not allowed to complain. Pretty, pretty sure it's in the contract that, that you're not allowed to complain. complain. Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't <laughs> hold your breath waiting for a complaint to come out about the schedule. I, I think... Probably this week is the one that would be hard to fathom for a lot of them. These are the guys who didn't play the end of the year mm. on the PGA Tour. Mm. That that was the time for you know the guys who were trying to save their card or whatever it was. Or go overseas and make money. Or go, yeah, it, this was the time that you know go and do that. To have at the end of the year, you know, Kepka was the only one to play the Ryder Cup, but most Ryder Cup players too. You know, there's a few exceptions who played Dunhill and played. Ludwig Orbert played uh, Sanderson Farms, but would be taking time off and would be relaxing. And these guys instead are playing an event in Saudi Arabia this week. And it's hot as over there at the moment. It was, I think it was something like 44 degrees or something this morning when they were playing practice rounds. And it's, a dry, it's a dry heat, though. It's a fairly politically charged atmosphere at the moment. It, too, uh, correct. But that, that kind of thing of they've had a bunch of weeks off and then suddenly we're going to do this and then we're going to do that, it, it wouldn't sit well with how many of them would plan, but they've obviously weighed that up against the compensation and mm. made that decision. How would you go with that, Meg? being told these are the 14 times that you'll play this year. You're free to play some others if you want to and someone will have you, but these are the 14 times you're playing this year, whether you like it or not. How important is the setting of the schedule, do you reckon, for most professional golfers? Um, I don't think I'd love that because I think there's times when mentally you have to take a break and it's in your best interest to take a break. And if you were told that, you know, or if you knew you had to play, then that could be a problem, but you know, equally that's what other sports are like and you just kind of have to get on with it. So I think it's just what we're used to, isn't it? And that's why I imagine it is quite weird for those guys because like you said, there's no chance on earth that they would have, if that was a European tour event or a PJ tour event, they wouldn't have gone there to play. No chance. Two weeks before the Masters, was it? From memory? Adelaide. Last week? Yeah. Last time? Two weeks before the Masters. Yeah. None of those blokes are coming to Australia two weeks before Augusta. Weeks? Under normal sort. Was it two weeks before or three weeks before? It was something. It, it was, was close. It was yeah. thereabouts. Yeah, it was yeah. anyway. anyway so. Look, luckily, Meg, this, that's how jobs work. I know you've never had one, but the way jobs work <laughs> is even if you don't want to go, that that's how you still have to go. That's how you get paid. So just so that professional I, golfers understand how the rest of the world works. <laughs> we are all very <laughs> I do think, though, that golfers playing certain tours are almost like that. It might be a bit of a reminder. Some of them never played, you know, lower secondary tours and stuff like that where that's the case. I mean, the Ladies European Tour travels. Oh, man, the schedule, schedule is, like, I look at <laughs> yeah. it often and I go, how do you go from there to there? And you've got the option, of course, but some players needing to keep rolling to keep, you know, entries and stuff. Mm. This week with the WAPJ and Kalgoorlie, there is four guys who played the Dunhill last week who got in on their order of merit p- position last year in Australia, yeah. Australasia, who are coming back to play Kalgoorlie. From a flooded... From a flooded Scotland, canoost. which then got delayed and it was a like Monday night finish wow. effectively. So they are all making... I think Justin Warren had four flights to get there, but obviously 
he has ranked it and he's made the decision. It's different, but he's kind of in a position where he has to play when he can play. Mm. Um, he's got a. He's got to trust that his golf clubs will get here too, yeah. which is no, which is no, which is pretty. Yeah. You were going to say something there, Meg, about the schedule for the LET. It's pretty crazy. Yeah, I was just isn't it? going to say we went from from France to Hong Kong, you know, immediately, and that's we do it all year. And I think you kind of, like I said, you, I mean, you have a choice and you don't have a choice. It's like a weird situation to be in. Obviously, the the answer to that is the better you play, the more choice you have. But that's kind of what the live guys have taken away from themselves by committing to what they've committed to. But I think that's always been one of the appeals of professional golf is the better you play, I think the more freedom you have to do what you want. Um, it's that infuriating but then equally, answer. playing professional golf is yeah. what you want to do. So It's the infuriating answer that double-digit handicappers throw in professional golfers' faces and shut up, just play better. You play better, it'll all be fixed. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of true, which is what's infuriating about it, but it's not as easy uh, as it might think. As you might think. What about your own plans? So, so in all of this, we're not seeing this yet in women's golf. Do you hear any whispers about a potential live type setup in women's golf? A lot of us have been asking for a long time. We know they've got the Aramco series, uh, which is the same company, uh, the same fund that the PIF that's funding live. Uh, has there been any whispers? You heard any talk? And I'm sure you'll tell us straight up front if you have. <laughs> But what about that and what would that look like? Do you think that could work for women's golf? Would it be a good thing for women's golf, a live-type arrangement? Um, well, I haven't – it doesn't seem to be a thing um, because it gets – every player's meeting that we have, it gets brought up because the um, the two tours, the LET and the LPJ, are in the process of trying to, to merge. You know, I don't know if it will happen or not. But obviously the pushback on that is always – what about Aramco? What about Liv? You know, is there an offer on the table that the Saudis want to come in and buy the tour? And it keeps, we keep getting told, no, that's, that's never been a conversation. And it seems that Aramco are very happy with kind of the situation that they have now where they obviously host, I think it's five or six tournaments now, um, you know, and they get some of the best players in the world there. I personally have always felt I don't see what I don't see it as being viable enough for there to be a live women's tour. I I just don't see that there's enough current marketability for it to be something that they would want to do because you know, you take you could probably pick ten names that the general golf public will know in, in women's golf. And then what happens outside of that? You know, I just, I don't see it as being something that they would want. You know, it's not to say I don't think there aren't 50 or 100 or 200 players that, you know, that would be worthy of earning the same amount that the men are. But I just don't see it as being viable for them. I think men's golf's actually got the same problem. Yeah. There are really 10 Splash. names. Half a dozen. That Maybe half a dozen. People would genuinely, in. people will pay to go and watch. Men's golf's got to put up on a marquee for the Australian. Unless you know, the, like golf broadly, men's golf, golf broadly has one name that trumps all. If Liv had got Tiger, they win. They win golf. If, if you've got Tiger, you own golf. That's kind of how this generation has been. He's almost got that much pull, even when he doesn't play. He won the pip last year. Hmm. <laughs> like, what did he hit? Played six days of golf or something? Three three majors, two days at each, and won the whole thing, lock, stock, and barrel. So uh, that sort of vision. Would you 
Would you be in favour of that? Would it be a good thing? Would it be a better thing for women's golf to have a live type setup than it has been for men's? In men's, I think you could say whichever side of it you come down on, it's been pretty divisive and not necessarily a great thing for the game overall. Um, that's a good question because I've always thought about it from the perspective of the LET and thinking that it would be a terrible thing because, well, even the LPGA, I, I don't see how either tour would survive if there was a successful live tour for women. Um, you could obviously argue that the same way in men's golf, if there was an actual global tour that had the actual best players in the world and there was some kind of qualification aspect to it and it went all over the world to the best courses, that maybe would be the best thing for professional golf, you know, in both men's and women's golf. But actually you'd have to, you know, you'd have to start everything again to make that actually work, and that's never going to happen. Wouldn't it be fabulous if it could, though, sometimes? <laughs> yeah, if you could start again, my goodness, wouldn't wouldn't it look mm. different? The Exactly what Meg just said about, I always had fears that if it happened, if there was a live model effectively brought into women's golf, that the tours, established tours, wouldn't be able to survive. No. And Not I think that's a, a very, <laughs> that's a very common thing, but... As when the, the the merger stuff broke and it was clearer about what the you know reason for live coming to be sort of came apparent, I think that's one of the reasons it hasn't advanced more because the PIF didn't really want to have to start up on its own necessarily. They wanted to be involved in what was existing and maybe bring in an additional model, but effectively to get in with the PGA Tour. That was the goal, realistically, if you strip it down to a really simple sort of thought on it. so It's the easiest way to do it, isn't it? No matter how much money you've got, you don't want to burn it just correct. for the sake of it. If correct. You don't have Whereas to. if they looked objectively at women's golf and where they would do it, and someone was sitting there and said, well, the tours won't be able to survive this money and all this sort of stuff, there would have been a realisation of, well, then it falls to us. We've got to do it all ongoing. We can't work towards, which I think, is one of the reasons maybe it didn't advance, but also once Liv got started, it took off like a freight train and then it became such a management issue and who knows what other plans got abandoned on the way. Not in the same class, but somewhat related. We're seeing Lexi teared up on the PGA Tour this week. Meg, what are your thoughts about this? It's not the first time we've seen it. It doesn't happen often, but what are your thoughts about it? And the players must chat about it. We talked about it the other day. I'm playing from this. I thought Logue had the best thing. It seems there's an awful lot to lose and not a lot to gain for Lexi personally. That's how it feels from the outside. But what's your own take on that? That that was my first reaction as well. Was I struggled to see why Lexi would want to do it, especially when she's historically not been great at taking criticism. Like, you know, so fair play to her for... I, like, I can't even begin to imagine the pressure you would feel doing something like that. But, you know, maybe maybe it's just something she wants to do in her career, in which case, like, good for her. Um, but, you know, unless, unless she makes a cut or comes very close to making the cut or has, you know, one really good round, I don't see how how there's much positivity from her end. But I did, you know, I listened to her interview, I think from maybe yesterday, um, you know, and she talks about inspiring kids and, you know, maybe maybe that is what's most important for her and she thinks that that's the best way to do it and, you know, fair play to her, I guess. And it, may, it makes sense that it's this tournament with the Shriners Children's Open as well. I think that's the theme 
of the thing. In Vegas, of course, and those two just marry up beautifully, don't <laughs> yeah. they? Which is it's exactly yeah. where you'd set up a charity for kids. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, Sorry, I'm, I'm feeling particularly about... cynical this week, clearly. <laughs> My apologies. <laughs> I, it's one of those things where golf uh, never is – I don't think women's golf is particularly well served by comparing it to men's golf. Um, it, it's at least – from the same tees. Like, I think it's greatly enhanced by the sorts of formats that we've seen become more common in Australia recently and, and in Europe uh, with different tees being played um, for, and for the same prizes. I think that's greatly enhanced the status of women's golf. But um, I'm less a fan of that than I am the Vic Open. Well, where do you stand? Yeah, no, the Vic Open is even better, I yeah. think. Do you like the one purse, different tees? You were involved in the very first one of these that I can remember where you had the European Challenge Tour, senior, European Legends Tour and the LET. Did you not come close to winning that, if I'm not mistaken? <laughs> yeah, thanks for bringing up that past po- trauma. <laughs> apologies <laughs> no, yeah. for that. But mm. Zooming but yeah, out. It was, yeah. I, w- I will quickly say, so I... That was the first one. So you're right. It was the LET, the European Senior Tour and the Challenge Tour. And it was the first time they'd done it and it was, none of us knew what to expect. And I thought it was incredible. And not just because I played well, but because just being around the men in that environment, I was amazed by how genuinely just how inclusive the whole thing felt, you know, and it wasn't like a fad. It wasn't we're doing this because, you know, we want all the popularity contests. So it wasn't even on TV, but just recognizing how much of what we do is the same. I felt was the thing that really hit home in that particular event. But I have to say since then, I, I don't think it works. Like the ones that I've played since then have made, I think a lot of the players appreciate that it's just too hard to get it right to make it fair enough you know, and then it's it's a bit of a lose-lose situation. Like what Lynn Grant did whenever she won was extraordinary. And I do think made all of that worthwhile by the attention it brought to women's golf and her performance. But I think as like a long-term thing, I, I don't think it's necessary. I think something like the Vic Open is exactly the right way to do it when you can appreciate that the sport is the same, but it's played differently. And there's no reason why you can't be worthy of the same prize just because you're a man or a woman. But the actual competition of it, I think, should be kind of still separated. That's kind of my my opinion on it. It's disappointing that you're agreeing with Rod there. But um, <laughs> What do you think about my take on Vegas and the kids' hospital? Were you with me on that, Meg? Are we agreeing on that as well? Um, the, the thing I find interesting as a thought experiment with this as well is what if it was just more normalized mm-hmm. and because you know Lexi playing this week I was actually a little bit surprised that it was her first time attempting mm. this uh, she played in that for, team event that with oh that, that must have been what I was thinking of yeah yeah, yeah that's right anyway um it would it would kind of be something about this appeals to me is what if, what if there was a couple of spots almost every week for a, a couple of women to take a shot at it like that, and it just gets normalised. Like from the same tees or not? Yeah, from the same tees. And it just gets yeah. normalised. It's just going to be a part of every PGA event then that there's a couple of spots for women there if they want it and they can take their shot. And These are big questions, aren't they, beyond just golf? Though. Yeah, because like right at the moment it becomes such a big point of focus, which 
I guess is the whole point because it's trying to bring attention to women's golf. No, it's trying to bring attention to a tournament. But it makes the stakes incredible. Well, true. But it makes the stakes incredibly high. Like when if Lexi for the, for the has a couple of really poor rounds, taking it on. Yeah, yeah. If Lexi has a really couple of poor rounds, it's you know very damaging to her career. But it, it, you could argue it, it somewhat damages women's golf. But if it was more normalised and it was something that was just happening every week, there I will think, be. I think that's the the argument against just going all in on something like that. Like we've spoken at length in this podcast and playing from the tips about WebEx Players Series in Australia being a great initiative here of men, women, and then they bring in amateur juniors on the weekend. There's all abilities. It's one competition, one prize money, one trophy, varied tees. Like Meg says, it is a it is a quite an achievement or effort to get the course measured up right. Mm. But I think with the success of it when it was first unveiled, I think a lot of people thought, well, that's what the Challenger PGA Tour of Australasia and WPGA Tour of Australasia need to do for every event. No. No, Don't it's know. not. And it's not what it's they have done. Very good for the TPS. They've expanded the, the number of events, but they haven't gone all in on that. And then there's still the Vic Open model and stuff like that. I think that kind of falls in that same thing with having two women's spots each week in the PGA Tour event. It kind of... If, if it does serve a purpose, if it is positive, that probably goes away if it's just there every single week and it becomes this side well, sort of part. I think it's going to happen enough then that somebody's going to make a cut. Like you have enough shots at it, somebody's going to make a cut. Someone might even contend. Someone, you know, heaven forbid, there might be, you know, right there at the end and it's an incredibly exciting opportunity. But it, it takes the edge off of the times when... It's just a missed cut as well, and but there, uh, there's much more. It seems to me like there's much more upside with having more women attempt it all the time, where it's just there's less at stake, but there's more upside if it comes off. Meg can talk to this. Meg, you played the Vic Open. You played some of those. You mentioned the one that Lynn Grant won. I think you were playing in that field, and you mentioned the other one that you played in. Was that on the week of the Masters? That try sanctioned one we talked about that you nearly won. That they had it on the week of yeah, the Masters the, from memory. The one in Jordan. It yeah. was. It wasn't the Masters, it was the, because I remember writing about it, it was um, the first time they had that Augusta Women's Amateur. That's right, the Augusta Women's Amateur. Yeah. It was the same week as what was the a and Championship at the time. Part of, to me, what allows this, part of the reason the Vic Open works is there's no contention amongst the players. The, you're playing two different tournaments. There's no need for any of the guys to be upset. We've heard Scott Hend talk about. Well, he's talked about the Australian Open, which is the same as the Vic Open. Well, he yeah, he's spoken about the Vic weeks. Open as well. Yeah, and that that's fine. But there's a lot. It feels to me there's a lot less of that than what you get. And you would feel it on the ground, I'm sure. There would have been guys in that field, and there probably would have been women in that field too. The week that Lynn Grammer, that weren't great supporters of the idea of the format of the tournament. I'm not sure that's healthy if you're trying to get to a place. Where, I mean, surely you want all the players on board and happy about playing the tournaments. That'd be your first thing, wouldn't it? Is there anything to that? Yeah, I think there is. And it's definitely been, there's a noticeable variance of opinion, you know, that, that you feel when you're there. Like there are, there are guys like Swathand, like others, who will pace off the difference between the tees and then go and complain about it in the tournament office. Equally, there's guys who recognise that we might be at a disadvantage because the length of the course doesn't allow for the necessary differences. Um, the course we played last or this year for the mixed event, there were so many tight pins and 
the difference in the spin rates, it's just, you know, like I, I spoke about it with the guys that I played with, you know, they said, you've hit exactly the same shot as us there, but you can't get it to stop. Mm. And that's just the way that it is. Um, and it has been, I think it's nice at times to go, oh, look, we're, we're all at the driving range. We're all on the putting green doing the same drills. Like there's an element of that that I really like because it is, you know what? We do more the same than we don't. But there is also an element of sometimes you feel like the guys think we're taken away from their event um, or that the prize fund isn't what it should be because we're there or, you know, just maybe a little bit of dismissiveness. Yeah. Um, but I've noticed that less the longer it's gone on and, and maybe that's that's the purpose of it. I don't know. There'd be... There'd be prize money that wouldn't exist without some of those events. True, too. true. It's and I think to the the thing uh, tying it into Lexi, where it kind of, I the the stuff I've seen out of the players, PJ Tour players playing this week are mostly excited, but it's social media stuff curated by the tour. You're not going to see the negative side of it, but there'll be complainers. And nobody's going to do the VJ sing, are they? With no. Echo back in 2003, but you never I, live I, that down. I'm fascinated by Lexi saying. Like, if she was asked about where making the cut would rank in terms of her career accomplishments, and she sort of said, at the top. Really? Wow. So, that was, that's, that, there is a PGA Tour tweet with a graphic of where would making the cut rank in terms of your career accomplishments, definitely at the top. That would be an amazing feeling. An extraordinary feat, but. It would be an extraordinary feat, but uh, there's no way to rank it, of course. Oh, of course. But. I don't think that... The babe did it twice. babe did it twice, yeah, but I don't know that that does a great service to women's golf and what Lexi's golf achieved. Generally. There's not a golfer out there whose career goal is to make cuts, is it? That's not your goal, is it, Meg, to make cuts? I mean, it's one of the goals, but it's just the stepping stone to what you'd actually like to do. And that that's why, why I think the whole thing is weird, because I don't... I struggle to see who gains from mm. it. Unless, you know, if you look at it from a from a completely different perspective and go, it's about the kids who are hopefully inspired by seeing a woman come and play in a PJ tour event, then that's a whole different conversation. But, you know, if you look at it the way that we're conditioned to from a, you know, golf analysis standpoint, like would she not get more out of her career if she won another major, you know, pretty inspired to kids too, wouldn't it? (laughs) Yeah. And that's, that's where I find it difficult to kind of, understand because like you said it's if she makes the cut it's still oh well done like a woman one woman is able to make the cut in a pj tour event there's thousands of other guys who would have made the cut in her place so like where does the opinion of women's golf go from there i don't i don't really know yeah i'd never really thought about it i think it was karen harding might have pointed this out to me i know karen lunn has spoken about it since as well i'd never thought about this at the vic open but Certainly, a lot of the women feel that lots of people are comparing the winning scores between the men's and the women's tournament and making judgments about, well, I never have because to me they're two different golf tournaments. But it feels like there's a, whether it's right or wrong, there feels to be a widespread. Have you ever felt that, Meg, that there's a comparison of the scores at the Vic Open that that people are judging women's golf harshly because if the scores aren't as low? Personally, I think the women's field. Absurd. Yeah, the the women's I have too, but if it's real. And they've also always been pretty similar, which is. You know, they've never been. True, usually, the, Vico, think, the women's field has made that tournament by far more than yeah. the men's. 
And that's the thing is, I, I think there must have been one year where it was quite different because I remember seeing something about it and it wasn't, it wasn't really something that had crossed our minds as mm. players, I don't think. But there must have been one article or, you know, one comment, something like that. But that's where I think what you just said about the women's field has significantly helped that event. You know, and I think things like that are actually worth paying more attention to than mm. than all of the other noise that goes with it. Like the Australian Open, it's such a shame that the position in the calendar has changed and, you know, hopefully it's going to get back to, to kind of what it was because that, you know, that was one of the biggest events, like in terms of strength of field, like mm. the, the woman that would come to play that versus maybe what the strength of field was for the men. And the shift in the calendar has made it, I assume, stronger for the men, but it's hurt the women's side of it hugely. It hasn't weakened the really field did. for the men, which is the which yeah. is the thing they're worried about if they move it to February, which is a lot of people have campaigned for in the past. And that might change with the new PGA Tour schedule and depending on what happens with Liv and those things as well. But the problem for Golf Australia with all of this, and whilst I've got my own criticisms of the format with the men's and women's, I have some sympathy for Scott Hen's opinion that the two national championships deserve their own week each. I think that's a sensible argument to put. I do think he puts that in good faith. I don't think he's anti-women's golf in any way. But the problem for Golf Australia, as James Sutherland outlined on this very podcast, was it's what the commercial market mm. wants. If you want money from sponsors to put on golf, you have to show them that you're doing something worthwhile, and a mixed Australian Open is seen in the eyes of corporate Australia as worthwhile whereas separate events are much, much harder to sell. And that's zooming outside of golf. We think about the golf. And I agree with you, Meg. I went to two Women's Australians open, Opens in Adelaide, and they were fabulous. Some of the best tournaments you'd been to. The fields were fantastic. The quality of the play was amazing. The courses were incredible. But outside of golf, none of that matters very much. And if you want the, the sponsorship dollars, the reality is it's not beyond the realms of possibility that both the Men's and Women's Australian Opens could cease to exist. That is not off the table necessarily. It's just not that easy to get money. Adam Scott's not going to live forever and keep coming back and playing the tournament. Cam Smith the same. We know Jason Day hasn't been a great supporter of the Australian Open. It wouldn't take much for both of those tournaments to necessarily become unviable. The problem they've got is the rod they've made through our bag is exactly what you've said, Meg. The two, the two different fields require two different times of year to attract the best players. Mm. And what they've done at the moment is opt for opting for the men's event being the the women's field is now smaller we accept that we won't get a lot of the top players and the winner last year actually Buhai even said this is a terrible time here to have this tournament I hope she comes back to defend I don't envy Golf Australia the position they're in but they're the things they need to juggle sorry Rod I think you know that then becomes a whole other conversation that's not just about Australian golf it's I, I personally think you know the value of a golf tournament and of professional golf has been inflated so far beyond what Agreed. what it should be. Agreed. And that's, you know, that's for a whole host of reasons, but it's now, you know, and LPGA players are doing the same thing to a different degree. If the tournament's not 2 million at least, then it's probably not their, worth their time to come. You know, and the whole, for me, obviously playing on the LAT is a completely different scenario. But if I was in an LPJ player's shoes or if I was Rory McIlroy, you can understand why they think those things. And, you know, I think that's a whole other dynamic that 
that will have to be sorted out at some point. Agreed. The market's going to sort it out, Meg, whether we like it or not. And we yeah. might not like the result of that. But if, when you're in LPGA player shoes, by the way, Meg, not if, when. If I, the thing, the, I hear that argument, which I think is, makes for a very good sort of stump line about this is what sponsors want. Mm. Um, but I, I think it's a very much a sort of a one reason response where the the whole the, the, it's a much more nuanced situation and the product manager in me thinks to myself well it's, it shouldn't it be about what the the customers want and the the better product is is what the punters want to go to we've had this discussion we, before uh, and we know your thoughts on making the australian open something special and you've said yourself for uh, god's sake don't goes, put me in charge it goes hand in hand with the second point which is well, this tournament's in danger of not happening. That's just nonsense. You can stage a tournament. Mm, we all agree so, on that. Like, whether it's being paid, played for $100 or $100 million, you can stage a tournament. So you can continue playing the Australian Open. I, that, that not, I just find that a nonsense argument where you say, well, it doesn't have enough money, so we can't stage the tournament. Um, but it, it, Because it will come back around if the prestige is there. You know, circumstances might not allow it to be something that a lot of people are going to come to, all the top names are going to come to for a year or two or 10 years or whatever. But you keep building the equity in the product and make it something that the punters want to see, then it will come back around. I agree with you. You can continue staying. Those two thoughts go hand in hand, which is why I think it's a a dangerous thing for the one answer to be, oh, it's what the sponsors want, because that's too narrow a view of what it takes to create a great product. I think that's very much... This is good stuff. That's very much, this. Rod, I think, simplifying what James said when we had him on that podcast. I, there, yeah. there was more... It's the thing that now cuts through. Now, it's my through. fault. No, no, it's no. A no. Great, it's a great line and it cuts through, which is, I think is always the danger with the political sort of a response like that there was, to a situation like that. It, there was... The great political lines cut through, but it leads to this... Brexit this means Brexit. Very narrow, yeah. It, I mean, it's stop the boats. Yeah, make, make America great again. <laughs> yeah. Those, those are very, like, yeah, the political lines the that cut through. There is, yeah. there's, obviously a, there's obviously a fine, like, it's a probably impossible balancing act with every stakeholder involved in a golf tournament like an Australian Open to please everybody all the time. And Scott Hen's an example of what happened last year. But if you're talking about building the equity in the tournament with, you know, its legacy and everything like that, isn't that what they did with the same model with the Vic Open that Rod's just spoken so glowingly about? Now, I've always said, you know, we shouldn't use just one model and take it there. But the Vic Open was not the Australian Open, but it was a tournament on its knees. Hmm. It was done. Didn't exist for the women. Correct. So the model that is now in place that we speak so highly of is what they went to and they built equity in the tournament. They didn't play the first one at 13th Beach. They didn't have as much prize money. They didn't have as good a field. They built equity in the tournament. Where did they play it? They played at Spring Valley and? Spring Valley and. Ooh, this will test. 2012 it was, sponsored by Subaru. (laughs) I can't remember. Don't know why I remember that. Woodlands? Woodlands? Woodlands, Woodlands, I think. Woodlands, yeah. yeah. But they, they built it by taking that different approach, which was, I'm sure, in part, you know, influenced by attracting sponsorship and everything like that. So I think while we're sort of taking the headline of why the Australian Open, I think it is, as you said, it, it is so deep into where the, what, ta- which side of the tournament the men or women would not be, you know, 
in the in the same place, particularly after COVID and all that sort of stuff, but also longer term with the planning and everything like that, that it's it's kind of it it is kind of building equity in this new model. The dates is unfortunate that was going to have to happen because of, of the two the schedules, but I think hopefully at least on the men's side of golf, Adam Scott spoke about this yesterday that there looks like there's going to be more windows for international golf going forward with everything once it gets settled. And men's golf is one of those, is the driver of that because of how things are changing. That hopefully that opens up windows and then there can be more cooperation between tours and men's and women's golf included to create that sort of field boost that we would be fantastic to have like we did with the Women's Open when it was in Adelaide in February. Mm. Mm. But it's... um. Yeah. Adam Scott's an interesting one because I mean he's playing. He's probably getting paid a certain amount, but he's also probably. <laughs> I didn't want to <laughs> just throw accusations out there. But that's the bigger point. I think is that he's also playing because a substantial part of him wants to win another cool. Australian Open. Hundred percent. And the PGA is well, he can't get enough of those. So, but the the Australian Open he's really underperformed in the Australian Open. Two thousand seven. No, I think two thousand nine. At New South Wales. He really should have so many more. <laughs> Came second last year. Yeah. Well, he's he's had a number of very close Until he hit one a bit rogue on 17. Um, what's the answer, Meg? Clearly, us three blokes have got no idea. We haven't come up with anything here. Is Logue right? Is the Romantic Masters Augusta National model, build it and they will come? Is he on the right track with that? I'm going to say it depends what the question is specifically. I think we've got to figure that bit out first. It's um, a brilliant answer. But I, like, I think from... From a like European perspective and maybe international perspective, it's always made sense to me that you build the national opens and there's prestige around those. There's always going to be, and you bring back the you know the best ranked players from each country, and that's how you create a really sustainable product. I think for those particular tournaments, and then you have the majors. But obviously, that's you know it's too simple a concept because you've got all the other conflicts that go around it. And like you said, the, the stakeholders and their different, you know, needs out of it all, that's where the whole thing becomes so muddy. You know, you look at, if you take the Australian Open, I've got no idea how many different people are invested in that and they all want something slightly different out of it. But then what's the most important? Like you need the money, but you need the fans to come, you need the players to come. So it's like what which is the thing that makes the makes the tournament happen in the first place? What comes first? I don't know. It's the, the trophy. <laughs> it's, I mean that, that's what everyone was playing for in the very start. That's how the tournament came about. I agree with you, and I want to agree with you, but I've asked you this before outright and you've said there's no way if you were James Sutherland you'd have the courage to adopt the model that you're that you're um, campaigning for. Well, yeah, I mean, that goes for all parts of my <laughs> That's life. That's pretty much, I'm exactly. Not, I'm, I'm the guy who's, I'm the <laughs> black adder who's, like, advising the, <laughs> the guy to do the other thing. So, but, yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's doesn't, you, doesn't you make it wrong. Column, didn't you? Sorry? About, um, did you, you probably saw Huggy's column about, um, I think, as, like, an experiment, getting rid of the prize funds for the majors. Mm-hmm. I didn't, but what did he I, I have, no. yeah. yeah. It's a good one. What did he Talks say? about that 
if you don't have prize money, it's all about just winning the trophy because it's becoming this financial me. financial arms race of you know major prize money going up and up and up. And what would the effect be and everything like that? What was his answer? I can't remember exactly. I he also stopped it a couple of months ago. He's also had a few goes at sort of saying, let's just get rid of the, the official world, world the golf world rankings, rankings yeah. which is, I think, is a great idea as well. But there's, there's, there's exactly as you described it, the romantic notion that it'll just work. Yes, it, the Sandbelt Invitational probably takes that approach of... It is. Let's, it may not work, but it'll continue <laughs> to exist. And, and it won't then, be Logue that's made the and decision, then, so that'll just be okay. Someone else and can And then it'll the be heat. unique in Australia, in go- world golf, and it could be super successful. Like, it really sets it apart. Isn't that just a clash of romance versus reality? The notion of taking the Australian Open around the country to every state is fantastic until you realise you can't pay for it. Santa's a wonderful can, notion, but again, he's not real. You can real. stage a tournament for, like, people do it every day all around Australia. They stage tournaments. Name them. Yeah, name, name an There's, event. Like, and name the Australia winners. stage a couple yeah. of thousand tournaments a year. And name the winners. That, it, um, that's not what there, I'm... There's that, a you're point, the point. I'm not. There's a point where what you're saying can't really sustain itself in reality. Surely. If you want the Australian Open to be important, and you do, I'm sure, then you can't just let it virtually die on the vine in the hope that you're going to rebuild it over a long period. I don't think. I think you're doing a bit of a slippery slope thing where you're dialing it too far into the direction of disaster. Like, it's never going to be to the point where it's just ridiculous. You're completely safe in these notions because they're never going to be tested. You can always be right, can't you? Because it's never going to be tested. And I agree like, with you. My heart agrees. What, I want to be where, on the logo. Every, everybody says like the budget, what, what's it, it's like $3 million purse or something like 2. that? 2.75. I know it hasn't changed for a long time. So where, where does it fail? Like is it a million dollars where it's considered a failure? It's like, ah, oh, let's call it off. Like oh, You can still stage a tournament for a million dollars and, and it's not going to be as obscure as your saying like you're dialing it too what far I really hate here is that that's such a good question and i don't have an answer i really really i hate think that. as well like the thing that makes it so hard is everything's become so short term and so it has to work immediately it has to work now because what i think what adrian's saying is you know is valid like if you had a long-term plan you could the australian open could be you know not very successful for a couple of years but then in 10 years' time, it's everything you want it to be. But the problem is the stakeholders want it now. You know, everybody, yeah. everybody wants everything now. There's bloody stakeholders. Yeah, Wait, right. yeah. The Vic Open is actually a prime example of what you're saying because, as Jimmy said, it was nothing when it started and it just built beautifully and organically year after year after year into Until an it amazing attention. And then it almost became a victim of its own success in some ways. It's like, what are you going to do with it now? So it's now got to the point where don't we need to take it back to urban? Stakeholders start saying, well, we can get a better return if we do this, 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 and this. That's where it was when the pandemic hit. It was a European tour event and an LPGA event. Nobody would have predicted that in 2012 when they were going between Spring Valley and Woodlands. Nobody. Most people would have said it wasn't going to see 2013. Hmm. And it's a credit once again to David Greenhill, who does not get enough credit and and enough kudos for the, being the person who came up with that idea and drove it and kept it going. And that tournament has inspired other tournaments around the world. And David, again, fabulous effort on your part. Um, what about Australia, Meg? We haven't seen you here, I don't think, for a while. We had that swing of ladies European tournament as well, which I think was fantastic and seemed to me the guys here probably don't know, but I was at the Women's New South Wales Open at Dubbo a couple of years ago. <laughs> But the fact that that gets that response, it makes the point that Maya Stark was in that field, Attire Titikin was in that field. 
Uh, All the greats. A, well, there was a bunch of very good players. In <laughs> Open to New South Wales, by the way. Open to New <laughs> South Wales. Is there any merit in that? And why aren't we in Australia maybe doing something like that? Because that's disappeared off the calendar, hasn't it? I think the players liked it. Certainly had some success. Well, I'm pretty sure it's coming back next year, which is exciting for everybody, including me. Um, I don't I don't know exactly what happened this year, but I know the the LET have started raising their minimum prize funds and I I think they couldn't the Australian tours couldn't get there this year, but next year I think they're coming back, which, you know, kind of ties in with everything we've just been talking about. If there's a, a long term plan, you know, they had those events this year, but they weren't sanctioned with the LET. Yeah. So, you know, they've had a year where they're maybe smaller, there's there's less names playing, but they're still there, which gives them a chance to to grow again, hopefully next year and and everything after that, because we do. I know all the LET players love going to Australia, but it does it does kind of need to be for more than more than one week or one tournament mm. to make it viable. It's almost a grassroots idea, isn't it? Uh, it feels like and you would you would be able to back me up. The support that you got in those regional places, you won at Bonville, of course, and you played you won at Coffs Harbour, the New South Wales Open, the, out at Dubbo that year. There was fabulous support, I thought, and lots of people out watching the golf and team. They were terrific events, great vibes, and serving a purpose, a much better purpose than quite a few golf tournaments probably around the place. Felt to me. Yeah, and that's like it's quite a weird one because sometimes. You know, when you're having your little, like, darker moments as a professional golfer, you kind of wonder why it's all worth it. Because if I, you know, if I win a tournament in Australia, what does it mean in the bigger picture? But when you're in those moments and you're doing it, it it means everything. You know, there's there might only be 20 people around the green, there might be a 1,000 people around the green, but they they appreciate what's happening. And whatever feeling that is, you know, as a professional golfer, that's that's what drives me every day. And hopefully those people that were there, you know, they take something from that, whether it's going and playing golf with their kids for the next few weeks or, you know, it's a company that's invested in the tournament getting some return on it. You know, it's there are a million different reasons why golf tournaments happen. And I think sometimes we forget about those when we're trying to look at this bigger picture stuff you know there there are reasons for them existing beyond just how much money does it make on tv well if there's not then they've got a very short term view last question from me meg we haven't seen much of you publicly you mentioned you wrote a blog last week it's the first one you've done for a while has that been deliberate and are we going to see more of you now that you're back on track with your game because i miss it thank you i wish i could tell you why i don't know what's made me kind of stop writing so much. Because it's hard. I do it every week and it's not much fun. That's why. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, maybe. it. I don't know. It just feels like maybe when things are going better, you feel like you have a bit more validity to to say things. Maybe that's part of it. Um, Or it's just I haven't seen as much inspiration in my own game in, in the world of professional golf. So, We'll see. If you uh, if you see anything you think might trigger me, you can send it, and I'll see if it <laughs> there we go. makes There's me right. Open invitation to uh, to send Meg. It's like, what have we missed from Meg that we need to talk about? We could keep you here for hours, but we won't. Uh, no, that's been a really interesting conversation. I just wanted to shout out. Oh. Um, what? I'm oh, sorry. I'm, I was, I'm waiting for it. Uh, I was. Uh, this is not what you were expecting. Oh, okay. I, was, I just want to shout out a former guest as well, Hannah Holden, who had some really good data, as I recall, on 
the where to position the tees for these mixed oh, events. Yeah, I, did I, what, too. I didn't get a chance to mention that, but I just wanted to say it uh, because, uh, and I think part of her conclusion was that for a couple of the events that she analysed, the tees were equitable. Mm-hmm. Um, but what is equi- it depends how you define equity, and I think part of it was that you actually had to put the tees so far forward that the the women are hitting shorter irons in so that the spin characteristics are um, comparable to what the men are hitting from further out. It's not so that they can both be hitting five irons. No, that's right. Or something five like irons that. aren't equal, that's right. Yeah, the, f- so, the, f- the first approaches to it were very rudimentary and advanced so much. Anyway, I just wanted to let that... Uh, what was Hannah was, wearing was when she did all that, do you know? What, what sort of clothing was Hannah wearing when she did that study, do you know? That might have been what was coming. Uh, she wasn't wearing <laughs> Angus and Grace Go golfing. Well, that's on her. A, which is a shame. <laughs> that is one of the nice worst. Work. worst <laughs> no, no, no. no. I'm, I'm on board with that. Great job. <laughs> Great job. Angus and Grace Go golfing, of course, sponsor of the podcast. I don't know whether you've got any of their gear, Meg, but a magnificent clothier. Yeah. Can find them on the website, Angus and Grace Go golfing dot com. Clothier. Clothier, yeah. Okay. I called Matthew Burns a clothier make, the other day. They sell apparel. Apparel, that's <laughs> right. <laughs> and uh, on Instagram, Angus and Grace go golfing. There'll well. be links, of course, in the show notes. And, of course, you can sign up to Patreon for the Kids Golf Podcast, the Kids and the Freya Golf Academy in Uganda, who are helping with their podcast. Do that because they need stuff and it's good for them and it's good for the game. Anything you wanted to ask Meg to finish up, Jimmy? Uh, not particularly that we haven't covered, no. Not that we should record. Uh, no. <laughs> There's plenty of stuff we need to find out once we press the stop. I've, I have been looking at Meg's results while we've been doing this, and there's a lot of open to opportunities here. <laughs> My favourite being the open to Big Green Egg. Oh, the Big Green Egg. <laughs> Didn't Steph Kiriaku win that yeah, in her she first did. year? Yeah, yeah, the big yeah. Green. Is it a bar- It's a barbecue, isn't it? It's the a Big smoker. Green Egg. Yeah, a smoker or something. It's, you literally win a Big Green Egg, but yeah, it's a barbecue. <laughs> That's an incentive. <laughs> but, um, it just occurs to me that listeners won't know this open thing, but that's oh, from another playing podcast, from tips, yeah. Playing From the Tips, which you know, Rod, Jimmy, and myself do. So mm. go listen to that. Yeah, go playing listen to that. Tips, go back two to weeks. That's you'll the be sort of quality you can get <laughs> yeah. listening to that. Yeah. <laughs> Meg, thanks for sitting through the madness. We appreciate it. And uh, best of luck going forward. I feel like I do feel like you've turned the corner. I've been watching your results too, and it feels like there's good things happening. So best of luck with that. What are your plans? Back to Q School this year, LPGA? Um, maybe, maybe not. It depends how the rest of the year goes. Um, we've got four events left on the LET, so we're where are we going? Uh, India, Saudi, and then two in Spain. So we'll see see how they pan out. But you can probably drive between those. They're all nice next to each other, aren't they? So the schedules <laughs> exactly, yeah. really convenient. Best of luck in all those. Thanks for taking some time today. That's it for episode we'll say 161. We'll be back again to do it all next week here on the Good Good Golf Podcast.